Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk about this whole situation again with COP26. Uh, nations struggling to reach consensus on climate pledges as COP26 wraps up. Our guest says solving climate change is mostly about green innovation, not expensive, unsustainable promises. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is the founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank. He's also the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Welcome back, Dr. Lomborg. Uh, did you uh, essentially receive here, uh, observe from COP26 what you expected when it began? Well, Roy, it's great to be back. And and look, uh, COP26 just ended uh, like half an hour ago. Uh, and when you read through the text, it is very much what you would expect. Lots and lots of promises. It's basically, let's promise to do even more. Let's promise to do more out in the future. Let's promise to spend even more money. But of course, there's actually no extra promises in the treaty as such. It is just a question of saying, Let's try to get even lower in temperature. Let's try to get even more money to developing countries. And of course, all of these things are stuff that we have failed in the past. So major nations are, no pun intended, big smoke, not much else. Biden chatters on about pipelines and net zero at the same time he pleads with OPEC to increase production. Mm. Yes, and that, of course, shows you it's very easy to say you want to talk big on climate, but when the payment comes to when you actually have to have your citizens experience higher energy costs. And of course, remember, any reasonable climate policy will have to include higher energy costs. You suddenly realize, oh, wait, that's not actually going to keep me in office. And so you want OPEC to make uh, big changes in their policies. The fundamental point here is we are not going to solve climate change by trying to make fossil fuels more and more expensive. Yeah, you've said uh, the best way forward is an innovation-led response to climate change. And your quote is, we should innovate tomorrow's green technologies rather than subsidize currently inefficient wind turbines and solar panels. Can you expand on that a bit, please? Well, Roy, the simple point here is right now, switching to net zero is going to be phenomenally expensive. One study in Nature shows it could cost the U.S., 12% of its GDP. So that's $11,300 per person per year in the U.S. by 2050. Of course, nobody's going to reelect politicians that actually force that through. Uh, We know from New Zealand it could cost 16% of GDP. These are just eye-watering costs that nobody will be able to do. But if we could innovate the price of green energy, and remember there are many different potential uh, ways to do that, if we could innovate just one of these technologies to be cheaper than fossil fuels and, of course, provide power reliably in 24-7, then everyone would switch. Everyone would switch to this new, cheaper, in, better innovative uh, technology. So it really is about saying let's spend a lot of money uh, on getting better solar panels and better batteries. Let's spend a lot of money on getting better fourth generation nuclear, better fusion, all these other ideas. And remember, if we spend all of that money, it will still be a lot less than what we're spending right now 
on subsidizing inefficient solar and wind. So, Dr. Lomborg, you remind us that in, and you and I talked prior to, immediately prior to, and immediately following the 2015 Paris COP conference, uh, you, you remind people that during that Paris climate summit, world leaders, those that were there at the time, most, well, I guess most of them have been replaced, I'm not sure, World leaders promised to double research and development, R&D spending, on green energy in, in innovations by last year. How have we done? We've not done very well. We actually have seen a tiny increase, but nowhere near doubling. We're still short some 60 70%. So the reality is when everybody's clamoring for easy fixes that you can tell tomorrow, see, we're doing something, then you just put up another subsidized wind turbine or, uh, uh, or a solar panel park. It makes you feel good, but that's not actually what's going to solve this problem. We have not spent this fairly little money on the thing that will actually fix climate change, namely innovation. Instead, we spend lots and lots of money on stuff that makes us feel good, but actually has very little impact. I want us, and I think that's the rational way, I want us to switch priorities. Instead of doing stuff that doesn't work and hasn't worked for the last 30 years, let's invest a lot more, but still a lot less than what we're spending currently, on innovation. That's how you're going to fix climate change. Am I wrong if I suggest this? Now, um, you heard Mr. Trudeau, we played the clip at the beginning of a segment, say, if we don't spend the money now, we'll be spending more later. Now, Trudeau's policies, I think, are going to be hurting Canada and Canadians simply because they're extremely expensive and the expenses kick in right away. Shouldn't this country, am I way out of off base here, shouldn't this country at this time be exporting our natural resources, which are much cleaner than countries we're importing uh, energy from, and using that money or some of the money that's coming in to do exactly what you're suggesting, R&D, on new technologies? There, there's two parts of that question. So yeah. the first one, is it going to be more expensive if we wait? Well, that's only uh, academic truth because it says if you have to reach the same place, that is, if you have to reach 1.5 degrees, it's going to be more expensive if you wait. That's true. But, of course, that's not what's actually happening because nobody believes we're going to reach 1.5 degrees. It's a smokescreen. The reality is, are you going to spend a lot of money now and then basically drain the credibility of all climate policy and get you know leaders elected that don't want to do anything about climate whatsoever? Or are you going to spend money smartly? That means less money so that it's sustainable, so that people will keep voting for those politicians who say, I'm not going to waste your money. I'm going to do this smartly. And one of the ways, of course, could be, and that's the answer to your second question, one of the answers could be that you sell the uh, the uh, environmentally reasonably friendly fossil fuels in the longer run and f- use that to fund the innovations that are actually going to power the rest of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. If you empty people's pockets, and we've had polling in this country which shows that 52% of Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. That's not a lot of financial resource. If you start to empty people's pockets to that extent and beyond that extent, you lose them on everything else. Yes, exactly. This is what will elect Bolsonaro's around the world. If you ask people to pay thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars every year, every person, 
for expensive climate policies. Of course, that's not never going to work. And that's always been the, uh, the, the, the conceit in this whole conversation that somehow we'll manage to get everybody on board. Remember, in the U.S., there is not even a majority that's willing to spend $24 more on climate policy. So the trick here is don't try to spend tens of thousands of dollars. Try to spend hundreds of dollars really, really smartly. And you do that through innovation. We've solved all the big problems for humanity through innovation. We've never solved them by saying to everyone, I'm sorry, could you drive less? Could you eat less meat? Could you be a little colder and a little poorer? The uh, Toronto District School Board have been in the news in the last uh, 24, 36 hours, particularly because they refuse to support or promote the A Room of Your Own Book Club event, according to the club's organizer, because the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, told the book club organizer, Tanya Lee, that the board's equity department believed the guest at this event, criminal lawyer Marie Hennon, would be attending and send the wrong message because Ms. Hennon had represent, represented John Gomeshi, the former CBC broadcaster, at his sexual assault trial five years ago. So I want you to have a listen. This is just a few seconds of Tanya Lee, the uh, organizer of the book club, speaking with my colleague, Alex Pearson, last night on Global News Radio in Ontario. Listen. This is illogical to me. I don't understand your reasoning or the equity department's reasoning. I don't understand it. These young women are exceptionally bright, exceptionally bright. Mm-hmm. They will put questions at Marie. Marie can handle it. These girls can handle it. They are discerning students. How do you create critical thinkers if you censor books and censor speakers? I don't understand that. Marie Hannon joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Her, uh, her law firm responded to the TDSB. And uh, her book, Ms. Hennon's book, new book, is Nothing But the Truth, a memoir. This all just came together. Ms. Hannon, thank you for coming on the show. I just wanted to talk to you about your book. I had no idea we were going to be pulling in TDSB and this particular story along with it. How are you? Who knew? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing, Roy? I'm, I'm doing well. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, so the TDSB decision to not support or promote the book club or your appearance at the club because the board's gender equity group believes you defending John Gomeshi against sexual assault charges would send the wrong message. You responded on Twitter. Your law firm did. But would you just respond, respond here for the benefit of my listeners across the country? Sure. Uh, it's a, a fundamental and disappointing misunderstanding of the role of a criminal defense lawyer in our justice system. Uh, and to make those sorts of comments is to show, in my view, uh, a lack of knowledge uh, at best, and at worst, a real disregard uh, for what our justice system is about, what the various actors' roles are. Uh, it's, uh, it's disappointing, especially when it comes from educators. Yeah, if I understand correctly, somebody said it's a misunderstanding, but you know, I'll ask you to comment on that in a second. But the TDSB also won't support Nadia Murad, Nobel Prize winner, right? Activist, survivor of being an ISIS captive because the board fears her appearance would foster Islamophobia. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, she is a victim rights activist. She's a Nobel Prize winner. She's an extraordinary woman. I would think anybody would benefit uh, from reading the book. 
And yes, she too was canceled by the TDSB. So have they said to you that it's a misunderstanding? Have they been in touch with you since your law firm placed that uh, that tweet, which I think really clearly stated what this is about? Uh, they had not been in touch with me at all uh, until approximately an hour and a half ago. Can you share with us what they told you or well, wrote you? Sure. Uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Russell Rollins was very gracious. She's the director of education, uh, and she apologized for the decision and invited me to have a conversation with her students. Uh, so I was gratified to hear that. I, I thought it was a gracious email uh, on her part. And I look forward to the opportunity to have a conversation with students and to discuss the things uh, I hope they want to discuss or they have questions about. Um, but that was the first time anybody had spoken to me, had reached out to me, had asked me anything. No one asked what I was going to talk about. Um, this was the first time. So I've been reading your book, and I'm learning a great deal about your your family. Right. Your family's arrival in Canada. Mm-hmm. The fact that you were a serious little girl at five years of age. Who didn't, <laughs> yes. I, you kind of frowned on your dad's dancing. Yes. Right? I mean, I, I learn about you growing up. I learn about you becoming um, a very focused young woman. I learn about you mm-hmm. deciding on law. I learn a lot about you. I learn about your years working for your erstwhile and maybe still most admired lawyer, Eddie Greenspan. I, I, I learn about all these things. Uh, and you're a challenging person uh, to read. I mean that in a very complimentary manner. Um, but I can't imagine you, I'm not blowing smoke here, I can't imagine you getting up in front of a high school book club and in some way causing issues. And for the life of me, I can't imagine how you, having been a lawyer, defending the fundamentals of justice in this country by defending Mr. Gameshi, um, I can't imagine how you would be creating a problem. Uh, so, is the, this is a long way of my getting to this question. Is the situation with the TDSB specific to you defending John Kameshi, or is there a larger and maybe more murky reality at play? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, or I wish I knew. Uh, I wish someone would uh, explain it to me, but I can guess, because this is not the first time uh, this sort of reaction or response has occurred from an educational institution. You know, you should know, I taught law school for many years. I've spoken to high school students throughout my career. I've spoken to young women throughout my career. I meet with high school students one-on-one to uh, to often talk to them when they're interested in a career in law and they have some questions about it. So I, I don't know why that decision would be made uh, at all. Uh, but, you know, I have to think there are broader issues, as you identify, at play here. And... It tells me, really sadly and unfortunately, that educators are concerned if our students learn about the justice system and learn what defense lawyers do and learn what judges do and learn what prosecutors do and learn about the law at large. And I can't tell you why that is. I really can't. But it certainly is emblematic of uh, the view that we shouldn't be critically thinking as Tanya Lee said, that the role of educators and educational institutions at large is uh, not to encourage uh, different thought, 
to encourage listening to challenging opinions, uh, to encourage independent thinking. You know, if you're only going to raise children to hear uh, things that are easy to hear or things that they agree with, we are not going to raise critical thinkers at all. Uh, and I think that's the, the larger issue is that, you know, we are afraid to engage in conversation because apparently we should only listen to people we agree with. Yeah, that's what Twitter's for. Um, so I, I was criticized for interviewing John Rosen after Mr. Rosen's defense of Paul Bernardo during the Bernardo criminal trial. And this after I was a national trustee for the French and Mahaffey Families Victims Assistance Fund. So I had a relationship with the families. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rosen came in after the trial. He sat down for an hour, and I took a lot of heat for in, for uh, for interviewing him. He took heat for being defending Bernardo. So let me ask you the question that may be troubling somebody at the TDSB and people generally in society ask: Why do defense lawyers take on clients like Bernardo or Gomeshi or any number of individuals charged with extremely serious offenses? I know the answer, but please, uh, your words: Why do you do it? Sure. Uh, the role of a, a defense lawyer is very specific in the justice system. When the state, when the government chooses you to prosecute and brings the enormous weight of their power, of their authority, and seeks to take your freedom away, because that is what is at stake. We cannot forget that. Seeks to put you in jail and seeks to really deprive you of the right to live your life in the United States. There is still the death penalty. We believe in our justice system that you are entitled to have somebody there for you challenging the evidence of the state, defending you, advancing defenses in law uh, that are important, that a judge should hear. You're allowed to have someone argue your case for you, to voice your uh, your best defense. That is very critical because if you don't have that person in uh, in society, what you're going to have is you're going to have people who are wrongfully convicted, and we know that that happens. And we know, you know, in totalitarian countries, one of the very first lines of attack over and over in history is lawyers, defense lawyers in particular, judges, and the justice system. Because if you shut it down, if you shut that down, you shut down the ability of people to challenge the government, to have a voice, to, uh, to not be living in a police state, for example. So... The role of a defense lawyer, and I understand people's reactions, but often when you talk about what it is you do, how you do it, why you do it, how things work in court, there's a far better understanding of it. So, you know, it it really is a a function of our democratic values and our belief that a person is entitled to a voice in court and they're entitled to be judged by an independent person, the judge. Yeah. Um, I have to take a break here. We'll come back and talk some more. But I I know... I mean, this this country, and certainly the listeners to this program, were very much invested in the uh, outcome of another a case of another client of yours. I know you can't talk about the cases that you the clients you represent, but I think a lot of people in this country want to say thank you to you for the manner in which you represented a very honorable man who served this nation for decades. And I know he's listening now, uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, thank you, Ms. Hennon, for what you for how you represented the Vice Admiral. Thank you. Ms. Hennon, in the book you um you say clients ask you, Do you believe me? Right. Um, speak to that, please. How how important is that? If a client says to you, Do you believe me, what happens next? 
what happens next is I tell them you're asking the wrong question. Uh, you wouldn't go to a doctor and ask them, do you really like me before you perform the surgery? Again, it's a misunderstanding of what my job is and my role is. Uh, and my role as a, a defense lawyer is to, ve- to defend you to the best of my ability. Uh, and, you know, the, the do you believe me is, is really a, a question which people ask because they're in such a state of distress and such a state of isolation when you're criminally charged. So I understand the question, but, you know, part of your job as a, as a criminal lawyer, as a professional, is to assist your clients in understanding what the system is, what lies ahead, what your role is. And uh, asking your lawyer whether they believe you or not is really the wrong question. If, and this is the extended question on to the last one, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. If, if all your professional experiences and personal reasoning tells you your client is guilty, mm-hmm. then what? Same answer? Well, no. The, 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 if your professional reasoning and the evidence tells you your client is guilty, I mean, that's going to govern the advice you give to your client. Uh, you know, many cases are resolved by guilty pleas. Uh, I, I think people have to understand that you are uh, a professional as a criminal lawyer, and you have to bring your education and your forensic skill to it. It's not, it's not a magic show in court. And so if there is evidence that's problematic, you're going to speak to your client, you're going to investigate, you're going to see whether there's a response. And there are cases where there is no response. And if there is no response, you're going to try to get the best result for your client, or you may take the position that the state has to prove the case if it's not uh, a strong case from an evidence perspective. Uh, but all those things go into the mix of what you can and cannot do, and you're guided, obviously, by your ethical obligations. You know, the bottom line is, Roy, it's not what you see on TV. That's not how we practice law. Um, it's much more detailed and uh, forensic and skilled than that. Why did you choose to become a criminal lawyer? What, what was the motivation? Well, it's something I've always wanted to do. I, I candidly wanted to do it since I was in elementary school. And the initial part of it was that I was very fascinated by the issues that are engaged in the criminal justice system. I mean, that is where uh, you think about it. As a society, uh, abortion laws are, are struck down, where uh, mm-hmm. drugs, marijuana is uh, legalized, where we argue about so many things, freedom of expression. So the issues that are engaged in it are, for me anyway, intellectually interesting, emotionally interesting, uh, and it is where I wanted to spend my time. And the second reason is that it's actually suitable to my personality. I mean, there's no mystery. I'm a fighter. I like it. So this is uh, a contained boxing ring, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about you on the air at the time that... uh that Admiral Norman's case was developing. Mm-hmm. And the consensus was, uh, we're so glad that it's you defending the Admiral because there was a, there was a sense of confidence that you would, in fact, uh, get to the truth and, and deliver the truth of, of the situation. I know we can't talk about it uh, and the agreement that came out of it, but there must be times when, when you get to the end of a case like the one with Admiral Norman and all of its twists and turns, there must be a real personal satisfaction as well as a professional satisfaction when it's done, yes? Well, I, I think uh, at the time there's an enormous uh, sense of personal weight of of what's at stake as, as you feel with every client. But I, I think in that case, I certainly can say this, 
that it was very evident, you just needed to walk into the courtroom and see the number of lawyers from the government there, that the entire arsenal of uh, the government's authority and power and focus uh, was in that courtroom. There was no question. You couldn't miss it. Um, And that only served to spur us on more. Uh, We would not be uh, deterred uh, and uh, to, to fight even harder, to find the needle in a haystack or whatever it was that we were going to be presented with. So I think, you know, that was a significant burden. I think walking away when you uh, move away from a case, and it always takes a bit of time to get some distance and perspective, it just brought that into focus even more for me, which was uh, how how much the, the cards are stacked against you when the government focuses on you. Uh, and um, we... we came out of it, and Vice Admiral Norman got the result that he was absolutely entitled to. Uh, and so that, I think, gave me and, and my team, my, my co-counsel, uh, an enormous uh, sense of uh, satisfaction that we did the job we were brought there to do. I left this until the last, and I should have left more time for it. But it, this is your story. It's your book. Nothing but mm-hmm. the truth. Sexism. Is is it alive and unwell in the justice system? It's it's alive and uh, and uh, virulent, not just only in the justice system, all over the place. It's impossible uh, to miss it. Uh, it. It's something that you know women deal with daily in in all facets, and uh, it certainly exists in the justice system. You know, criminal justice, particularly uh, when I was first entering in it 30 years ago, it's a very male-dominated field. Police officers back then certainly were predominantly male. Uh, and so it, it was alive and well. But, uh, you know, as you see the composition of the court change, as you see more right. women being elevated to the bench and more diversity, that changes too. Okay. You know, it, it begins to reflect the community in a more realistic way. And I think that's been a really positive change. Professor Eric Kam, Ryerson University, macroeconomics professor, our go-to guy when it comes to the economy. Thankfully, you're always available to us, Professor, and I appreciate that. So the economy is strained. Inflation in the United States year over year, October to October, up 6.2%. We're at a 20-year high in this country. We see that, uh, this is Bloomberg again, that uh, prices for prime rib roast, 20% in the past year, highest since 1995. We know what's happening with gasoline what is causing this particular surge in inflation? And I'm not going to ask you what the antidote is yet. What is causing it? What's causing it? Well, since the last time we spoke, it's become very, very obvious that we're enduring some real supply side inflation. And if I had to think about it, which I did, I would put it down to two things. Number one, some very serious frictions in the labor market and some very serious disruptions in the supply chain or what they call the supply market. Put simply, right, the recovery that's happening to our economy, which is significant. The Bank of Canada is forecasting about 5% growth this year, but inflation is going to run around 4.5%. So if you look in the economy in real terms, we're not really gaining anything. The recovery of low-wage jobs is very, very slow, but at the same time, unemployment is very high and that's a puzzle because those two things shouldn't happen together 
So unemployment combined with job vacancies, that's that's very odd. And then where are the labor shortages? Well, they're number one, they're in the skilled trades. And number two, they're in the, the digital workers. So you really have a situation where the global supply chain disruption, these shipping bottlenecks are going to restrain growth and boost prices. And unfortunately, to your point, the higher prices everywhere are really being felt in the core every day. And before someone twitters you and says, this is why you should become a vegan, they should go out and try to buy a lettuce that's up by a factor of about three in about a year. Okay, now, uh, Mr. Trudeau is making many demands, and he's made statements about capping um, emissions in Glasgow. That's what got the response from Premier Mo that we heard at the beginning of the program and what uh, the Premier told us last Sunday. So, are Mr. Trudeau's climate change plans and demands of Canadians compounding economic woes, or do they have the potential to do that? They absolutely have the potential to do it. And the real problem with it, Roy, is that right now, when we go through inflationary phases in the economy, simply put, prices rise on what people buy most often. And so by trying to eliminate pollution to the ability that they can today and to be so strong and forthright about it, to bring in carbon taxes that they have, it's like telling the economy, we know prices are going to be going up and they're going to go up quickly so maybe you won't feel the fact that we're going to add additional pressure. It's like if things are already going up, well, they're going to go up a little bit more. The problem is, is they don't go up a little bit more. They go up a lot more. And that's why you see the price of something like gasoline or home heating fuel to these brand new levels that we've never had before. And that's my problem. I've been Twittered by people saying you don't want to clean up the economy. No, I don't want to clean up the economy. I don't want to clean up the environment today. It's not the right plan today when people are, as you know, $200 from forfeiting their homes. It is the wrong policy at the wrong time. We know that the International Energy Agency has said that even if all the emissions targets, even if all the environmental targets are met, that by 2060, the world will still be using 100 million gallon, uh, barrels of oil each and every day. So there's a need for the current energy um, resource, and that will continue for some considerable period of time. Now, uh, what is the impact? Now, I don't know how to measure this, and I'm not, I'm always distrustful of government agencies, although I have a level of respect for StatScan, I'm still always distrustful or mistrustful of government agencies. What's the impact on the purchasing power of an average Canadian family, if there is an average Canadian family, when we're looking at inflation rates that we're dealing with today? Well, so to back up your point, I've been looking for that crystal ball for a long time. But let's just say, let's just look at the rate of inflation in the United States at 6%, Canada's 4%, let's go at 5%. So it means that wages are staying flat, right? Everything in the numerators, right? Uh, your nominal wages, your things like that, whatever you're being paid, that's staying flat. But the prices of everything that you buy are going up between 5 and 15%, because we usually allow for a one to three factor, five to 15% more. So that means in, I always say real terms, real terms. So when you divide your wage over the price level, when you divide the money in your wallet over the prices of the things you're buying, you're gonna be between five and 15% less able to purchase. And that is incredibly significant to people that are already struggling to go to the grocery store or the gas station. Yeah. So given that information, 
Given what we know about the ability of Canadians to meet their bills, pay their bills at the end of the month, based on what Canadians told the pollsters themselves, um, how many more months might we be expected to be able to keep our heads above water? I don't want to get too negative here, but it's a question that I need to ask. Well, you know what? And I really don't have an exact answer because I never thought that CERB payments would last for the better part of two years. I mean, now the Bank of Canada has come out and said quantitative easing has to stop. So I know that that's on the horizon and that interest rates have to go up and that's on the horizon. But you know what, Roy? I don't think it's an economy question. I really don't. I think it's at the household level. The question is, how long can a particular household survive if prices keep going up at the levels that they're going up? And the answer is, again, without a crystal ball, not very long. If salaries don't keep up and they're not going up at all, the average household is going to be forced out of many, many markets within a year. So what would you say to the uh, prime minister of this country and his plans, his ambitious uh, environmental plans, when he's confronted with economic realities? What would you say he should do? I would tell him to go have a, a long discussion with the person that he put to run the Bank of Canada, because Tiff Macklem is a very, very bright person. He understands how things work, and he admits that this thing called the economy isn't per- isn't perfect. But right now, what we have to do is we have to fight inflation so that we can at least keep purchasing power of households. It maybe not constant, but maybe we've got to slow the decline so that people have the ability to still purchase the things they need every day and not get so far behind the eight ball that debt is going to eat them up to the point that they lose their houses and their cars. And for people that don't think that's a legitimate threat, if prices keep going up at this rate, you will see people losing their houses. You will see people losing their cars because they already can't afford small ticket items. How do you expect them to afford big ticket items? Yeah, I remember inflation. When it he, uh, they reached catastrophic levels in the early 80s, and people were actually taking their house keys and putting them under the, f- the front doormat outside and walking away from their homes. Roy, we are into a point called stagflation. And the last time we were in this, it was caused by the OPEC shock. And look at the ominous parallels. The price of gas, the price, it's going through right. the roof. Right. And we are heading back towards stagflation. If you don't learn from history, Roy, you repeat it. We're going to talk now about where we are, as far as our guest is concerned, where we in Canada are, as far as energy and uh, energy crisis and pricing is concerned. Dan McTagg is the founder and president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, 18 years a member of parliament, was a, a parliamentary secretary and worked very closely with former Prime Minister Paul Martin, who was also the finance minister of this country. How are you, Dan? I'm fine. Great day to climb a tower, Roy. Yeah, good to talk to you. And last weekend, we spoke with uh, my next guest, Katja Hoyer. She uh, wrote an op-ed in unheard.com. That's U-N-H-E-R-D.com. And the op-ed was titled, In Germany, Our Energy Crisis is Far Worse Than Yours. She also closely details what's going on in England, where natural gas, Ms. Hoyer told us, climbed 70% in uh, in August alone, August alone, uh, Katja Hoyer's book, most recent book, is actually going to be released in two or three weeks, Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. Katja, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? 
Hello, Roy. I'm fine. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, we want to look at what's going on in Europe, and then I want to ask my friend Dan uh, for his comparisons with what's going on in Canada and what he foresees for this country. So would you remind us, please, what the energy situation is, what the natural gas crisis situation is in England? What's happening right now? Well, it's, it's fairly severe um, in the short term and perhaps even worse in the long term because worldwide demand of natural gas has gone up quite significantly. So China, for example, just this year um, is using 8.4% more, which in the you know grand scheme of things, when you consider the size of the Chinese economy, is, is huge. Um, and so Europe is sort of sat there, you know, waiting for the for the increase in demand that it has to be satisfied from the world market and nobody really... Um, has enough sort of natural gas and, and resources left to pass it over to Europe. And so um, with the increase in demand um, after COVID um, happening in, in Britain and Germany and France and elsewhere, and, and that sort of coincides with the, with the supply chain crisis as well, um, energy is pretty sparse at the moment and that's driving prices up. And the government's trying to counter that or governments in various European countries are trying to counter that by putting... Um, sort of caps in place, energy price caps, um, which in turn means that the energy companies are are going bust one by one because they just can't afford to sort of buy energy at higher prices and not pass on the um, the buck to the to the consumer. So what is happening to the consumer? Let's start with uh, with England. What's happening to the consumer and particularly the consumer who may be not particularly well off and is needing to heat a home and buy groceries and take care of their lives. What's happening to that consumer, first of all, as far as energy supply and affordability is concerned? So the prices have slowly crept up, but not um, in tandem with the way that the the prices have crept up for the um, suppliers themselves, simply because of these artificial caps that are being put in place um, but at some point that's going to be unsustainable because as I say the, the companies themselves can't afford it anymore and, and a lot of them have already collapsed um, and so at some point once you take that artificial cap off to try and save the um, the energy companies themselves the prices are going the price hikes are going to be passed on to the consumers as well and I think at that point it's really it's really going to to hit home um, the UK and Germany actually both have already uh, got some of the highest um, energy prices in in Europe. Um, And there's going to be a real crisis, I think, in the winter. The, uh, the, we talked last weekend, and uh, we finally got around petrol and gas, right? I mean, we call it gas, (laughs) you call it petrol. But there were situations, and it was significant, there were situations where there were petrol stations, but just didn't have any. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty severe. So, for instance, my my house is about a mile or so away from the petrol station, and we had the queues literally in front of the house from that petrol station all the way down, um, as people were desperate to try and fill up their their cars. Although that was in part uh, caused by a supply chain crisis, so a lot of uh, lorry or, or truck drivers haven't come back basically simply after COVID because working conditions are. Uh, not great in the sector um, and so they've just basically not returned to their to their jobs which means that there's a shortage in in lorry or truck drivers um, and the other issue is that um, this was reported fairly widely across the media and so panic buying basically set in and, and a lot of people 
rush to fill their cars up all of a sudden and and, and demand went up by i think it was something like 70 80 percent suddenly over a weekend um for for petrol or gas um and the yeah basically the petrol station could stations couldn't keep up with that and that that was that was a short-term problem but in the long term obviously the the sort of chronic lack of supply um or the, the imbalance of supply and demand is going to uh, lead to that happening more often, I would imagine. So what's coming out of the mouth of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of uh, the UK, who was just attending the COP26 conference in Glasgow? I heard a quote from uh, the Prime Minister about half an hour ago. I have no idea what he said. He was speaking words, but they didn't really make any sense <laughs> to me. What's coming out of it? What, what, is he providing leadership? Um, well, he's very, very focused on saying the things that... Um, environmentalists want to hear because he thinks that that's where the votes are and that's where young votes are um and so for example one one thing that, that was a bit controversial today was that he said that he doesn't want to see uh coal um mines being reopened or new coal mines being established and in actual fact there's a new coal mine in planning in the north of england and cumbria um, and has been for some time which was sort of legally sanctioned by the state and for him to sort of ad hoc say no, actually, I don't want that. <laughs> it came as a bit of a shock to the people in the region where that was supposed to supply a lot of jobs and, and of course, income, and that's directly feeding into the steel industry. Um, that that particular coal mine is supposed to be be feeding into the steel industry, and if he now makes a U-turn on on the you know basis of of an ad hoc interview, it, it seems a bit rash. I think that's how people saw it. Dan, as you look at what happened in at COP26, as you listen to Mr. Trudeau talk about hard caps on, on emissions and the response from the Premier of Saskatchewan, as you know that Mr. Gilbo, and I think I've got him correctly saying that fossil fuel production in Canada is going to be done by 2030. Where are we? Where is this country headed in the short term? How serious are things? Well, I think it's very serious, and it's also extraordinarily uh, deaf for a government to proceed willy-nilly uh, down a path they know will lead the country to uh, the kind of outcomes that we're seeing in Europe. As Ms. Hoyer has quite rightly, very aptly, and very effectively pointed out in Germany, uh, in the UK, uh, but for a country that is a lot colder, uh, a country that is uh, blessed with an abundance of energy, uh, it is extraordinarily uh, you know, indifferent for the government of Canada to take a position uh, that basically uh, demolishes uh, its most important, most valuable uh, sector. And as a result, uh, will lead uh, not just to uh, consequences that I think are very predictable, uh, greater poverty in Canada, as well as uh, people having to choose between eating and heating. It will likely lead uh, to the uh, dislocation of the nation. And I, you know, I, I take note that other organizations and media may be saying, oh, this is just the West uh, being upset again. I would be very cautious uh, because I think that kind of uh, discussion, dismissive approach uh, to suggest that one issue is more important than another is precisely the, not the way to run a federation. It's likely to lead uh, to significant, perhaps unparalleled tensions between uh, the various parts. Well, we know we know there are we know there are regional tensions. There's no question that there's east-west tensions in this country. That's I mean that's that's a fact. When you say dislocation of the nation, what are you talking about? I think the nation is going to be looking at a, re, a recess uh, where uh, provinces are going to rightly demand the same rights that Quebec is is demanding and, and getting and uh, uh, holding out their hands for more money uh, to a government that is very close to being broke. Uh, I think it's likely to lead to 
uh, a financial uh, crisis for the nation to begin with, but also a political one. We know uh, that the, the alienation has been there for some time. But we also had a government in Canada for many years, uh, which I was part of, that was very deferential to what was happening. If we didn't have enough support out west, we didn't have enough seats out west, we did our utmost to make sure that every region of the country was properly represented and listened to. And when it came to energy, the last thing jean Chrétien and Paul Martin wanted to do uh, was to destroy the, the, the cash cow that kept our hospitals uh, and our uh, social programs going, as well as paying down our debt while putting Canadians back to work. So the world wants more Canadian energy. It's only Canadian politicians in the East run by Mr. Trudeau uh, who seem to be uh, running uh, very much a narrative that is contrary okay, let me, let me to ask reality. You this, let me ask you this question. Uh, the bankers, so we have the banks, the major banks in this country, major corporations like oil companies are say, are speaking essentially the same language as Mr. Trudeau and his government. What's going on there? Well, what's going on there is they don't care. Uh, you know, it's easy to talk about these things and not and mollify and appease a, a very loud group, uh, determined people, uh, while knowing full well that the only people who are going to pay for this are the ordinary jobs like yourself and myself. Uh, they don't really have to worry whether it's an oil company or whether it happens to be a bank. They can talk a big game about how they're going to meet certain targets, which are frankly impossible and I would argue very unnecessary. Uh, because they're comfortable in the knowledge that, uh, hey, people like us will wind up uh, paying for so, free. The problem is there is enough money left. So when the RBC report, the $2 trillion, $2 trillion <laughs> to net zero, when it, when it said, and I found this line, and I asked John Stackhouse, the senior vice president of uh, RBC, about that, it says Canadians are going to, be have to are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm still waiting for <laughs> The definition of uncomfortable. But let me, before before we go on with that, I want to ask uh, Katya for, uh, to just remind us, please, and not everybody who was with us last weekend, Katya, uh, or with us today, we were there last weekend. When you talked about nuclear energy options, you, you told us the Brits are more agreeable to considering nuclear energy than the Germans. Remind us why that is, please. I think most people are, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, in Germany, it's just historical reasons for you. The fact that during the Cold War, um, Germany was sort of the, the focal point of the tensions between um, the, the USSR and um, the USA. Um, and therefore, both um, superpowers stationed um, nuclear missiles on German soil, east and west, respectively. And there was this very real fear that if, if the Cold War becomes a hot war, um, that it's actually going to, to pan out or play out in Germany. Um, you know, there's nuclear bunkers everywhere still in, in Berlin, for example, underground, um, that are actually still, you know, active. They can be reactivated, basically. So, th so this is very much a reminder of what nuclear technology can do if it's if it's sort of used in a military context and Germans as a nation I think haven't forgotten that it's, it's very much left to trauma um there in the national soul and that's unfortunately I think um associated with with all nuclear technology and therefore um that there's this hostility towards it um they actually want to switch off all nuclear reactors in Germany next year um which means at the moment there's they're supplying around about 12 percent of the energy in, in Germany, which may not sound a lot, but if that suddenly breaks away, um, it is a fairly substantial part of it. And coal is supposed to be, well, originally phased out by 2038, but the current coalition that's forming after the elections that we've had in September um, is currently saying it will be closer to 2030. So if you take both of those things out and don't replace it with anything, 
it, it leaves a huge gap. Um, and the fact that Germany isn't willing to fill this with nuclear energy, which is by by most people's standards, you know, deemed to be more environmentally friendly than than coal and other fossil fuels, okay. then I don't really see where the energy is supposed to come from. Yeah, to I have about I, I have about a total of a minute left here, and I want to talk to you about your book. But we'll have to do that another time. Gotcha. And I want to have you on the show uh, talking about the book. Uh, yes or no answer really quickly here. Uh, is, are the Brits and the Germans and the Europeans worried about this winter, about energy supply? Yes. <laughs> they Dan? should be. Dan? 20 seconds. Uh, they, well, yeah, they should be, but we should be as well. In fact, I think we're very complacent. The only thing we hear out of coming out of Europe is COP26, not the yeah. fact that many Canadians are facing cold winters. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.